We do praise you for your amazing grace tonight, Lord. We praise your name. Thank you. Thank you for everyone that is here, Lord. Bless each one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I told you, tonight we get to continue uh, in John 6, which I'm very excited about. Um, I, I told you last week, I'll give a recap of last week, because like I told you, John 6 is definitely one passage, and it is interesting because there's kind of these breaks in it, and we know it uh, very segmented from the other pieces, right? We have the feeding of the 5,000, which everyone knows pretty well, and then Jesus walking on the water as well, which is tied to it. And then we have the bread of life discourse, which I am the bread of life, we know that so that phrase so well, right? Um, but all of it's related, and all of it's relating to, to this feeding of the 5,000, and what it signifies, what it means. And what it means is that Jesus, like God himself, provides bread, just like in the Exodus. So we talked about the background to this passage being Exodus 16. The story of the man in the wilderness. Remember, the Jews are delivered. They go out into the wilderness. Um, they go pass through the Red Sea, and they come across. And then in the wilderness, they start grumbling for bread. Right? Oh, only, if only the Lord would have let us remain in Egypt rather than die out here in this wilderness. And so they start grumbling for bread. And so G, uh, for the Lord gives them manna. The Lord gives them manna from heaven, this bread that comes down from heaven, this miraculous food, okay? So that's the background. And then last week we looked at how Jesus, like God the Father, provides bread. He is the bread giver. Like a new Moses out in the wilderness with the people of Israel, and, and like God himself, even greater than a prophet. He's like God himself. He is the bread provider. And we saw that when they saw this miracle, remember, the people were like, let's make him king. Let's take him by force and make him king. And Jesus responds by withdrawing from them further up the mountain. Right? He knows the intentions of their heart, that they're going to try to force him to be king, to make him a Messiah of their own making, not the Messiah Jesus claimed to be, but one that they desired. And so what happens is Jesus withdraws. And of course, the disciples are sent away, right? They get in a boat and cross the water. And Jesus walks on the water, the storm walker, like God. He walks on the waves and he crosses because he knows the hearts of the crowd, that they're going to take him by force. And so our passage opens up directly connected to that, right, in John 6. We open with the crowds waking up and, and they can't find Jesus. They're astonished. They're like, wait, Jesus was here. We know his disciples have already left. We saw them. And so it starts here in John 6, 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, which is the west side, Capernaum, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you get here? 
So remember, they had gone across to be alone on the east side of the, of the Lake of Galilee. And that's where the crowds found him, and Jesus fed the crowds. And so the disciples crossed back to the west side, which is the more uh, Jewish populated side, right, of the Sea of Galilee. And they're back in Capernaum, Jesus' kind of home base. Jesus walks across the water, and he comes back with the disciples to the, the west side of the lake, back in Capernaum. And so the crowds follow him back. They're like, first of all, how did this guy get across? They can't figure out, right? But they also are still seeking him. They're still seeking him because of what they saw when they saw the miracle. And so they get across and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus dodges the question, right? He dodges the question. He does not answer about when he got here. And instead, Jesus, astute as he is, cuts to the heart of their motives. What are their motives? Why are they seeking him? He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. The Gospel of John has talked a lot about that kind of signs faith, right? A, a, a faith that's only built on signs. And they say it might be good initially, but you have to move beyond that. Well, Jesus says, you guys don't even have signs faith. You don't even have faith in the miracle. But instead, you're seeking me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. There. Their motives are much more earthly, much more carnal. We were hungry, and you provided bread. Maybe we can get a second dose, right? Maybe if we, if we follow this Jesus guy, there's going to be more bread. He says, you're not seeking me because you saw a miracle. You're seeking me because you ate and were filled. So Jesus rebukes them. Do not work. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-identification, the Son of Man, right? That's the way he refers to himself. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now, Jesus doesn't say what the seal is, specifically. He doesn't explicitly tell you. But typically, seal language refers to the Holy Spirit, Right? You see it in Ephesians, that seal language, right? The Holy Spirit is a seal in our hearts. And so most likely Jesus is probably referring to the seal of, at his baptism, right? The, the Spirit descending on him. And we see that in John, in John 1. In John 1, the Holy Spirit, John says, I saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and alight on him and remain on him, right? And so that's probably the seal. We don't know that for sure, but that's probably what Jesus is referring to. The Father set the Spirit as a seal on Jesus to attest to who Jesus was. Therefore the crowd said to him, right? Remember he just said, don't work for the material. Work for the eternal. And so the crowd says, okay, well, what should we do to work those works of God? What can we do to work the works of God? How can we do that work that you're talking about for eternal things? And remember, we talked about this back in John 5 even. Jesus is talking about the work of faith. The work of faith. That's how John understands it. That there is an effort, there is a, a, a belief, a, a work in belief, an enduring, a perseverance in belief that faith requires. And so they say, what should we do that we work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him 
whom he has sent. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay? So the only work that's required, according to Jesus, is to have faith. Right? And obviously we're so steeped in Paul that we can't hear the word work without kind of shuddering, right? <laughs> we can't kind of like, oh, draw back from that. But that John speaks differently than Paul, right? What John is saying is the work of faith is the only work that matters. The only work that could that could ever relate to this is is faith. That's the only work that is the work of God, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And that's what that's what John says. That's the work he describes. And of course, Jesus, as he's going to go through this discourse, says even that work is something the Father gives, right? Even that work is something the Father gives. And we'll come back to that when we get there. So they, he says, this is the work of God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then? This line, huh, this line is proof that they were only seeking their bellies to be filled. What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What sign? How about you guys all getting fed from five loaves and two fish? Wasn't that a sign? Jesus has correctly ascertained the motives of their heart. They think, hey, maybe we can get another sign. Maybe we can get another loaf out of this, right? Was that not sign? Did, weren't they ready to make him king by force? Because they saw the sign? And yet they ask for another one. They ask for another one. Which again, we have to reiterate. Miracles don't guarantee faith. Miracles do not guarantee faith. Science faith is inadequate by itself. These people had, had experienced a genuine miracle. A genuine miracle from the very hands of Jesus, and they don't believe. The quote there in uh, verse 31, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. The background for that, um, if you're looking at your notes under 630 to 40, the background for that is Psalm 78, 24. And that's the best, probably the best reference we can give. It kind of comes from several places that they talk about that. But Psalm 78 uh, in verse 24 has the, the most explicit reference to it. And it says this in Psalm 78. Here, let me open it. In Psalm 78, 24, it says this. That's pretty straightforward. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. So they quote out of this psalm. Now here's the irony that John picks up on in quoting from this psalm. Psalm 78 is a psalm talking about God's faithfulness in spite of unbelief. The psalm opens by saying, let's not be like our fathers who were stubborn and rebellious and persisted in their unbelief. And then it goes on to say that verse, right? In verse 24 about raining manna from heaven. Why is he saying that? He's saying that, look at all the things God did for us. Look at all the things God did for our fathers. Let's not be like them and be hard-hearted and stubborn, but let's turn in belief. And of course, the irony is, they quote it 
just mm -hmm. like their fathers <laughs> mm -hmm. because they are persistent in unbelief. <clears throat> they persist in their un unbelief just like their fathers. That's the irony. <clears throat> and so Jesus says to them, don't you understand? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you a bread out of heaven. It was my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, if you've been reading John and you're, you know, you're paying attention up to this point, what's the only thing in the gospel that's been mentioned coming from heaven? Jesus. So if you're reading this closely, you know anything that's coming from heaven, coming down from heaven, that's always a reference to Christ. But they don't understand it, right? They misunderstand. They, they clearly think it's a physical bread he's talking about. But Jesus, already we know, he's talking about himself. He is that bread. He hasn't said it yet, but we know it's him. He's the thing that comes down from heaven. And so they say, Lord, always give us this bread. They're still thinking about bread. You know, it's not delicious enchiladas like we had tonight. It's just bread. They can't get past it. Like, give us this bread. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Lord, always give us this bread. Just keep making those loaves, and we'll keep following you around, making you into our own Messiah, what we want you to be. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. They saw Christ, and they did not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then these two verses are paired back together, back to back. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, referring to people, all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So, a little, we can do a little theology talk here, right? An issue that I know it's kind of, I don't know, I think it's something everyone struggles with to some extent as a Christian, right? This idea is your, is your faith secure, right? You have this eternal security as what they refer to in theological terms. Perseverance of the saints. Jesus pairs back-to-back -back thoughts about this tight grip of God and human necessity to believe. He pairs it paradoxically back-to-back. -back. He says, all that the Father gives him he will not lose. The will of his Father is that he lose nothing that the Father has given him. And the will of his Father is that whoever beholds the Son and believes in him has eternal life. Responsibility is never negated on, human, on the human side, ever. 
they're both, there is this reality of God calling people to him, of drawing them to him, and at the same time, humans are told, believe, believe. You have to believe. And Jesus sees no problem in saying those two things, literally, the very next sentence from one another. You know, I think we have to hold those in tension. I do. I think we should be convinced of the power of God to hold on to those he's, he's uh, given to his son, according to this. We have to believe in that power, the holding power of God. And yet, it is, ne it is necessary. It is necessary for us to persevere in belief. <coughs> and, and John makes that explicit. Throughout the whole gospel, throughout the whole gospel, John makes it explicit. You have to persevere in belief. Right? And we're going to see it most clearly next week when John 6 wraps up. When John 6 wraps up, I'm, I'm going to go through the Bread of Life discourse this week and next week through the faithful response, right? The disciples' response to Jesus after this Bread of Life discourse. You have to persevere, and how do we know that? Because even the disciples' response to this Bread of Life discourse, it says many of them walk away and stop following after him because of this teaching that we're going to read tonight. Mm -hmm. That's the result. Even those who had initial faith, who believed in Jesus, it never denies their belief, but it says they did not persevere in belief. And so they walk away from John 6 because of this teaching we're reading tonight. And then he turns to the 12, right? The devout. And Peter speaks for all of them when he says, Jesus literally says, so what? Are you guys going to leave too? <laughs> Peter speaks for them and says, To who else could we go, Lord? Who else has the words of life? We are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. We'll get to that next week. Let's see what upset everyone so much first. So therefore the Jews, this is verse 41, if you're following along. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And we're brought right back to where we were in John 4 and John 5, where we saw, remember that no prophet has honor. In his, in his own country, in his hometown, right? Remember John 1.11, that this, it, it categorizes, it categorizes the response of the Jews to Jesus. In John 1.11, it says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. And so they say, it's, it's familiarity breeds contempt, right? We know this, dude. Like, don't we, we know his dad and his mom. Here's what's interesting to me, too. They say, we know him. Isn't he the son of Joseph? One thing that's interesting to me in the Gospels, when people say that he's the son of Joseph, they don't know him well. When they know him well, they say he's the son of Mary. Interesting, right? That's an aside, but I find it interesting. No one knows him as well as they think if they say he's the son of Joseph. 
because those who knew him knew the stories we read about in Matthew and Luke, right? The story of Jesus' birth. But they say, hey, this guy lives in Capernaum. We know him. He, like, lives down the street. Like, you're telling me he came down out of heaven? They assume they know his origin. He came from, from Joseph, and we know. He was born like any other person. And now he's trying to say he came down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's another strong statement, right? No one can come unless the Father draws them. Right? That's, that's to be honest. And I, I mean, I know enough people in this room to know that, you know, that that's a, a kind of a Calvinistic sounding statement to a lot of you, for those of you who think theologically. I think you have to wrestle with that. I think you have to wrestle with that statement in this room, because I know the bent of a lot of people in this room. You have to wrestle with some of these statements. That is very much a predestinarian sounding statement. <laughs> that God, unless he draws them, no one can come. Jesus says that. Now the question is, what is the nature of that compelling, that drawing? What is the nature of that drawing? And, and to me, this is the same drawing that's used in Song of Solomon. That word is used in Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, the same word in the Greek translation in the Septuagint, to draw. Solomon draws his lover. It's a woo, right? And I think that shouldn't be lost either. This is not a forceful, commandeering, possessive, angry draw. Just get over here. This is love. This is, this is relationship. This is a wooing. That's the kind of drawing the Lord does. And I think that's important. I think that's important to recognize. Jesus, the object of our faith, God is drawing us to him. Like a lover. Like a lover. So Jesus goes on in, in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. This is the second background uh, blank here in your notes, if you have them. In the background, it says this. Jesus says, um, "It's excuse me, it's from Isaiah 54, 13, is the reference. So Isaiah 54, verse 13. And um, if you know Isaiah, this second section of Isaiah is all about restoration from exile. And especially when you get to the latter half of this second section of Isaiah, you're all thinking about this new creation that's coming, this new reality, this new era that's dawning, the messianic age. And so it's very specific that Jesus quotes from this passage saying they're all going to be taught of God because he's referencing Isaiah 54, which is, is this idea that in this new age, people are going to be taught by God themselves, right? They're not going to need all the teachers and all the people that you know are mediators, that, that God himself, is the great teacher in this new age. And it says all the sons of Israel will be taught by God. Right? That's what it says in Isaiah 54, verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. 
And that whole chapter and beyond really talks about that dawning. And Jesus, by quoting that, saying, that messianic age, it's here. You will all be taught of God, but listen to this. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, they come to me. If you come to me, you have heard and been taught by the Father. If you do not come to me, therefore, you have not heard and been taught by the Father. That's the claim Jesus makes. And again, Jesus presses into this. There is no other path to the Father than Jesus. If you've heard and been taught by the Father, you believe in Christ. If you haven't, you don't believe. You don't believe. Jesus doesn't shy away from the, from the exclusiveness of that claim. That he and the Father... You can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Right? This manna that they keep talking about, that they're so concerned with, that they're so obsessed with, your fathers ate of it. They died. The benefits were not eternal of the manna in the Exodus. Because those fathers still died. They still died. But this is the bread which comes down of, out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now it's going to get real hairy. I think the reference to flesh, maybe where Jesus is coming from, this is interesting because none of the scholars that I've read ever mentioned this, but I found it interesting. Because in Exodus 16, right, so we saw him saying, I'm the bread of heaven, and then they, the people grumble again, right? If you read Exodus 16, they grumble, they ask for bread, and then after they get bread, the very next thing they do in Exodus is they grumble again, because then they want what? Flesh. The word in the Old Testament is flesh. I think that's why Jesus turns to this, in part. In part, I think he turns to flesh relating to bread, because he's just following the Exodus account in his head, right? Just like they grumbled for bread and they got it, now they're grumbling for meat. And I'm telling you, I'm the flesh that matters. But at the same time, what hung over this entire passage is John 6, verse 4, in which he says, the time of the Passover was near. Right? The time of the Passover was near. John says that at the beginning of this passage. They're getting near to the Passover. So Passover is on everyone's minds. And of course, that is really focused on the eating, the consuming of flesh, of the lamb. And as we know, John has already told us that Jesus is the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, right? John the Baptist says that in John 1. So he, he moves on to flesh, all right? So like, just like bread, I'm going to give you another example. My flesh, my flesh for you to eat. That's the bread that I will give. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever, will live forever. One thing that's it's worth noting, the question comes up in this last section about flesh and, and blood. Um, there always comes up the question of the Lord's Supper, right? Is, is, is John alluding to the Lord's Supper in this passage? And of course, for, you know, the, um, for Catholics and Orthodox Church, this is a very serious passage about the sacraments literally being the blood and body of Jesus, right? The blood and flesh of Christ that they eat. One thing that's interesting to me that I, I noticed as I was reading this time is that these two verses are in parallel where he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's pretty metaphorical, right? Because he says the exact same thing earlier about the one who believes, right? He says, uh, excuse me, where, let me see where it is. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the hun, Son, excuse me, beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. He says the exact same thing, but he changes the, the beginning, right? He changes, it's either who looks to and believes in the Son, or eats my flesh and drinks my blood. In both of them, he says, they have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. I think the former is probably the content, and the latter is, is the metaphor, right? There's a metaphorical sense, even as Jesus is talking about it, that this is a metaphor, that Jesus is flesh and blood. We're not, we're not resorting to cannibalism, right? This is a metaphor about what he's offering, and what we know he's going to offer, which is literally his flesh and blood when it comes to the cross, right? Jesus is preempting that. He, he's looking to the future saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my flesh and blood. And you have to partake of that reality. You have to partake of that reality to have eternal life. And that's what I think Jesus says even here, but as is characteristic of the whole of the Gospel of John, there's so many misunderstandings. There's so many places where people take things literally that are meant figuratively, that are meant symbolically. And of course, the response to this is, is um, pure horror, right? Because what what's one of the major rules the Jews have? Don't eat the blood. In the blood is life. Don't partake of the blood, right? Even when they eat meat, they drain the blood first. In fact, even when you come to the New Testament and uh, the new Christians are establishing rules and acts, they, they leave two rules, right, from the, from the Old Testament law. And one of them is don't eat blood, which is interesting. 
That, that even holds on for the Christians in Acts. In the blood is the life. Jesus is referring to that life being poured out for us. His blood. But it's interesting because John is, is saying, even when we think about the Lord's Supper, which, how can you read that passage and not think about the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, it's too ingrained in us when we think about Jesus' flesh and blood to think Lord's Supper, to think communion. Even when you read that passage and you think that, John wants to point beyond the symbol, beyond the sacrament itself, and look at the event. And we have to remember that. This is not just some meaningless ritual we do, right, when we take the Lord's Supper. But it's pointing to a very real, very uh, intense reality behind it, which is that the flesh and blood were a legitimate, real cost to Jesus Christ. And that flesh and blood was poured out for us. It's not just bread and wine or bread and grape juice that we take and that, that is um, you know, just rote. It's just something we do and we do it once a month and that's the meaning of it. There is a cost behind that. It points to the event. It's not enough to just partake in the ritual, right? That there's a real reality that extends beyond it that we have to take into ourselves, take into our hearts and believe in to have eternal life. You don't just get to come into the church and, and take the bread and be like, okay, I got it. I got saved. All right, sweet. You have to believe in the event that stands behind it. You have to look to the sun and believe is what he says in the other part of the passage. right? And then you have eternal life. Then he will raise you up on the last day. And next week we'll see the response of at least the supposedly faithful And we'll look at the, at the devout response. And, and that, that's a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson because they're all disciples, at least originally, until this teaching comes. Until this teaching comes, they were all disciples. And I think there's a couple lessons as we, as we leave this passage tonight, as we finish up. One, and I, I've mentioned both of them, but I think um, just a little more reflection. One is especially as we think about where we're heading next week, humans aren't relieved of that responsibility for belief. And, and I said this last week, I said that, that there is... I just think there's no way to escape if you, if you are legitimately a Christian coming across hard teachings of Jesus. It's impossible to escape. There's no way in which Jesus will not confront you with your finiteness, with your weakness, with your own inadequacies, with your failures. And he does it like, like a lover, like we just talked about, just like the Father. He does it like a lover. I'm not denying that. But, man, if Jesus has never confronted you with who you are, I think you have to ask the question. You have to ask the questions of yourselves. Am I following the, the Jesus that is really Jesus of Nazareth? Am I following that Christ? Or am I making him into a Messiah of my own making, just like the crowds? How have I responded to this Jesus? Have I, have I found him as he really is and responded to him as he really is? 
or have I tried to make this Jesus that is my the God that I like, the God that kind of reflects my own image, actually? Have I tried to make that Messiah? Because he's pretty easy to believe in, the Messiah that just looks and thinks a lot like you. It's pretty easy to believe in that Messiah because he looks and thinks like you. Jesus, the Jesus of reality, uh, confronts us, just like he does in this passage. A, a reality, a, a teaching that they were totally ill-equipped and unprepared for. The Messiah is going to die and pour out his life. His, his flesh and his blood will be given so that they can have true life and that they can have eternal life. None of them were prepared to hear that. Even Peter in the Twelve. They respond because they believe, but they don't understand. They respond because they have faith and they trust in the Lord, but they do not understand what he's doing. They will. They will come to that place. But they were called in faith to believe before they understood. Before they understood what was happening. And, and I think about how many disciples in John 6 here followed Jesus faithfully, were following after him, walking with him, and they heard this teaching and they were like, oh, it's a hard teaching, Lord. I'm going to bow out. It's a little too much. It's a little too real. I don't think I can get on board with the Messiah who pours out his life, who, who gives his flesh and blood as food to eat and, and drink to drink. It's too much. And of course, the crowds. The crowds, even though they saw, they never believed. They didn't even get to the place of initial faith. And they experienced a genuine miracle, which I think is the other thing we have to remember. Don't rest on your laurels when it comes to your faith. Examine your own heart. Examine where you are with the Lord. Because... Uh, a miracle in your life, a genuine miracle, does not guarantee your faithfulness. You can have a legitimate, genuine touch of God, and you can still be unfaithful. We saw it in John 5, right? The lame man who is healed by Jesus, and he gets up, and he, he doesn't respond to faithfulness. In fact, he betrays Jesus. He rats him out to the Pharisees. This is a, a book... As we read the Gospel of John, this is a book that shows us all sides of the equation of, of both belief and unbelief and touch of God and not touch of God. Unlike the Samaritan woman who, she doesn't get any sign. And, and she believes better than the Jews. And she's a Samaritan. The responses are all over the board. And I think the Gospel of John requires to, us to ask of ourselves... What's our response? How have we responded to Jesus? And of course, even for those of us who've been Christian uh, our whole lives or a very long time, you know, all of us, I think, continually, continually need to ask ourselves that. How are we currently responding? How are we responding now? Because we have to persevere, like John 6 is going to teach us. We have to persevere in our faith. So anyway, let me bless you as we close tonight. Lord, I pray each person in here 
I pray you would bless them mightily, Lord. I pray that they would experience a genuine touch from you, Lord. As much as we know uh, from the Gospel of John that doesn't guarantee faith, we still need your touch. We still desire your touch. We still long for it because we know that it does not guarantee it, but it can strengthen it. And so I pray that you would give a genuine touch to each person in, in this house tonight, that they would, uh, and online, Lord, that you would touch them, that they would experience you, that your spirit would be near to them. Uh, for those in this room who believe, Lord, and, and for those of us who need a reminder, a warning, I pray we would be duly warned <laughs> and take stock of our own heart and our own condition. And for those who, who may hear this and not believe, Lord, I pray that you would cut them to the core. You'd cut them to the core so that they might believe, that they might believe in you, that your spirit would do his work to produce belief in them, that they would choose to believe and persevere in belief. And I just pray that we would long for and seek that touch tonight, Lord. We need an experience of Jesus. We need it. And we know those experiences still happen today because of your great, great gift. We thank you that Jesus came as the bread from heaven. We thank you that his flesh and his blood are true food and true, true drink, Lord. And that he gave that bread to us that we might partake by dying on the cross and being resurrected to life and by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us. And so we thank you, Father, for giving your son, for giving that bread, the true bread. We love you and bless your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Love you all.